Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. This is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening or awake people. Uh, for more information or to help support our efforts, go to batgap.com. My guest today is Hamid Ali, or A.H. Almas, his pen name. I've had him on the show before, and uh, I really enjoy talking to Hamid. I really enjoyed our last conversation, which I just listened to again the other day. And um, Hamid has written a new book called Runaway Realization, which we'll be talking about today. And as some of you know, this uh, is the first time we've experimented with doing a, a live stream of the interview. So there's about 35 people online right now watching and listening to this. And you'll be able to send in questions on the upcoming interviews page of batgap.com. There's a form into which you can put your questions and then I have a fellow monitoring those who will send me some of them later in the, in the interview. Hamid, uh, well, welcome first of all. Thanks for doing this. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, right. good to talk to you again. One of the reasons I enjoy talking to you, among many, is that in a way you and I have a similar attitude or perspective on things, which is that Realization never ends. Discovery never ends. Awaken, uh -huh. Awakenings, degrees of enlightenment never, never end. And that, that's sort of implicit in the title of your book, Runaway Realization. So I think, you know, perhaps you and I will cover some of the same points in this interview as we did in the last one, because you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and we're two old dogs who enjoy the <laughs> saying the same things over and over again to a certain extent. But maybe we'll start by having you tell us, if you can, what is new in this book than in your previous books, or that perhaps even might be something new since we last spoke. And then I have a lot of notes and questions and all that I'll be asking you. Yeah, this book is actually a departure from the series of books I've had published before. Mm -hmm. Series of books I have published before, basically they go through the, the teachings that I teach in as various segments, various stages, various kinds of realization, and goes in a kind of progression to a deeper, deeper and subtler, more complete way. This book doesn't continue the, the same direction, but sort of turns, takes like a right angle and exits that way of looking at things and look at them from what I call a non-hierarchical perspective not seeing things as something deeper than other or something, you know, more advanced than other. It's, it's a, a shift of point of view. And rather think about it, in this book, what I thought is important to write about, which is rarely, I think, discussed in a spiritual book, is what is the relationship of practice and actual awakening? What does what? What makes awakening happen? What does awakening or realization, we could get into the definition of those. What are, what's the dynamic? I call it the dynamic of realization in the book. So I just discuss, I, I lead up to it sort of in the book. I discuss various things about what make, you know, motivation for practice, the goal of practice, all these things that people think about in terms of taking on a spiritual path or a particular practice and look at them from first from the ordinary perspective that most people do and then from the pack, from the perspective of realization itself from what does that look like and then until i get to the place where i can discuss what i call the dynamic of realization which is what are the forces there 
how do things happen? Do we really achieve realization by our own efforts and study or whatever? Or is it some other force, some spiritual force that is responsible for it? Hmm. Or what's the relationship between the two? That's really the core of the, of the new message in the book, is trying to communicate that and, and discuss it in some detail and illuminate it. So, so that way, everybody, whatever practice they, they are engaging, they can look at their practice in a, a deeper and a more uh, meaningful way and, and to see what's... And I think can help people in their practice a great deal in terms of attitude, in terms of orientation, in terms of dedication. And, and from that, of course, then I go on as we understand the dynamic of realization. What is the view that arises about reality and awakening? And what is it? What is what does it we experience when there is a realization? And that's when we talk about the endlessness of it. Mm. That you know, I I basically bring in the the position that many people teaching take that they have a goal, what they call the ultimate and discuss how even though there are people who believe there are different ways of talking about the same thing, I go on to say that's not really exactly true. There are people talking really about, it's a really different kind of experience, each one of them talking about, a different kind of emphasis at least. And then I don't critique those uh, ways of experiencing reality as this ultimate, I agree with them actually. And so I take the view, the view is not that this ultimate is more ultimate than that, it's more like each one of them is really ultimate. Because, you know, reality manifests itself in different ways and each one of them can be experienced as ultimate. That brings in the question of what I call runaway realization, that realization away continues revealing, not meaning progressively getting deeper or more free, but different kind of you know, uh, freedom, a different kind of awakening. Because reality has many ways it shows itself. Mm. There are about 20 questions I could ask you based on what you just said, but um, uh, maybe a real fundamental simple one we should start with is what is realization? We're throwing around the term, and you just said there could be many flavors of it and so on, but if, if we had to boil it down to one essential definition, how would you define it? Yeah, so for, for me, realization means uh, being what we truly are. Being the truth, the fundamental nature or the spiritual nature, whatever way we... Being it in an undual way, living it. Mm -hmm. So realization, I differentiate a little bit from awakening. Awakening means you wake up, you realize all oh, things are different. I am not what I thought I was. Realization means you really identify what it is that you are. Mm. And not only identify it and discern it clearly, but you're certain that that's who you are and you're really living it. Living at that. So most people, if you ask them what they are, they'll say, well, I'm Joe, you know, and uh, I live in California and I have this job and I have this family and I have this body and I'm so old. And they, they describe all these relative things about themselves. Uh, but how would you, um, you know, it, but if Joe were a realized being, 
how would you expect Joe to answer that question instead of the kinds of things I just said? It will depend on which path they are following. You see, that, that's one important thing I mentioned in the book. If they happen to be uh, following a Sufi path, they will say, I realize I am a pure soul that is in union with the divine. That there is no separation between me and the divine. If you follow the Vedantist path, then say, I realize that I am pure consciousness and everything is consciousness. If you are a Buddhist, you say, I realize that there is no self, it's really emptiness. The emptiness of everything is what reality is. So you even say what I am doesn't actually make sense in Buddhism. So, depending, and I'm saying all of these are valid, and each one of them is true realization, is freedom. So, would you say that those three descriptions and other ones that we might give are essentially synonymous or identical to one another? They're just put in different terminology according to the, the tradition? Because ultimately, if, if realization is being who you really are, who a Buddhist really is different than who a Sufi really is or who a Hindu really is. Essentially, we are all the same ultimate reality, right? Although we might describe it differently. No, I'm saying something different. Okay. Which is that in some very mysterious way, we are the same. The way we experience it is different, not the way we describe it. Our experience of it is actually different. The experience of emptiness is different from the experience of pure consciousness. You see, when you experience emptiness, you feel that everything doesn't really exist. It's all sort of, including one's nature. One's nature itself is non-existence itself. The non-existence of everything is one's nature. That is not what Vedanta talks about. Vedanta talks about Satyananda, that we are pure being and pure consciousness and, and bliss. There are commonalities. Experience of emptiness has also bliss. But they wouldn't say it's pure being. They said being is really still conceptual. So I think of them are, are all experiences of realization or awakening. But they're really different ways of experiencing it. And that is the, one of the main points in the book I'm trying to make, that the different traditions are not just traveling different roads to the same thing. They're not all climbing the same mountain to the top of the mountain. It's more like when they climb the mountain, they get to the top of the mountain, they see different vistas. There are similarities, love similarities, and so it comes out with, all of them comes out with, with love and compassion and humility and all of that. But what they experience to be the essence of reality, there are subtle, and people could say philosophical differences, but there are really important distinctions, which is the reason why in history, there are debates, like you know, between Vedanta or the Hindu and the Buddha, there have been debates about who's correct. They didn't have the debate because they have different ways of seeing it. They really experienced it differently. Well, that implies to me, to my mind, that um, they are still like the blind man and the elephant, kind of uh, experiencing different aspects of the same thing, but according to their vantage point, having a different experience. It's like 
five people looking at the same tree, but they have different degrees of color blindness or something, and so they're not all having the same experience, even though the tree is what it is in and of itself. And actually, just to throw on one more thing, I've, I've heard it said that uh, according to one's makeup, that the rea this, and this concurs with what you're saying, that the reality will be experienced differently by different people. So in, in Ayurvedic terms, for instance, if you had a more kapha constitution or a more vata constitution, yeah. you know, one person might experience more vastness and one more bliss and one different right. so-called qualities of the absolute are experienced in different proportions according to one's mm -hmm. nervous system, according to one's physiological makeup. And even the Vedic rishis, you know, each had a different slice of, of the Vedic wisdom that they were capable of cognizing and that other rishis were not capable of cognizing. So they're all kind of picking out a certain nugget of fundamental reality and giving expression to that. Yeah. And that is true, I, that's part of what I'm saying. But I'm also saying that is the nature of things. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no limitation in the person. It's just the reality just manifests differently in different situations and different people. And also, it is not possible to know all the faces of reality. Mm. No, no one human being can encompass all of it, because it's infinite. And there are ways of experiencing the nature of reality that nobody has experienced yet, and yet to be experienced. Hmm. So that's what I'm saying, runaway realization means the discovery continues. Discovery hardly means discovering things already being discovered before, but also may include discovering things that haven't been discovered before. Yeah. Because the potential, because it's not like at some point we will know the final nature of reality in, in a complete way that answers the question and we could just stay there. There isn't the, the, uh, the true nature of reality, which are you call the true nature of consciousness or awareness or whatever, is always appearing in one way or another. And you can't say, what is the, why can't appear itself without a face? And the answer is no. When it appears without a face, it's unrecognizable. Would you say that God or reality, whatever term we want to use, actually needs the human being in order to know itself? That we're like instruments through which reality can know itself, and that's why we exist. That's another part of the book that I also try to make explicit, which some teaching, you know, talk about, some teaching don't discuss, which is that, yeah, the Sufis, for instance, one Sufi saying, Ibn Arabi, Sheikh Al-Akbar, the great grand Sheikh, he said, God needs the soul as much as the soul needs God. And the idea is the soul needs God's to be, to exist. But God needs the soul for God to know what it is. So the soul is like an organ of perception or a lens for reality, for it to have experience, to know itself. And both are real. They're two sides of the same thing. And we can go into the, the subtlety of that, you see. And I don't adhere to the people, don't believe the people who say the soul or the individual being is an illusion or a construct. I think the construct is taking the individual being and reifying it. 
and giving it a particular form and a historical pattern and all that, saying that will be what's called the self, but that is not what is the individual being. The individual being is of the, the very nature of reality. It is like reality itself, the pure consciousness or pure true nature expressing itself as a, an individual being. Like being becomes a human being. It, but without losing the fact that it is pure being. Yeah. There are certain, you know, Vedantic sayings such as, you know, there's the, st the snake and string analogy from Shankara, and then there's yeah. that, that verse from the Gita which says, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. Often those are taken to do what you just said, to dismiss any relative phenomena as illusory. But you're saying that in some meaningful way, relative phenomena are, can't be entirely dismissed as illusory. They have their own intrinsic reality. Yeah, well, we were talking about the individual mm -hmm. soul or the individual consciousness, not just all phenomena. Right. That's a slightly related, but not exactly the same topic. So I'm saying that the individual experience, not only is needed, there isn't experience without it. Mm -hmm. Oh, how can true nature have any experience of itself or anything else without it? Right. I mean, if you have to, if anybody has to claim that, they have to resort to something like, so the Bible says so, because who, it cannot be experienced by a person, right? A person is not needed. They say God can know, God knows himself independent of the human being. Christian theology says that. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But we know from our experience that there's always, in the experience of awakening, there is always a human being involved. Yeah, there's a saying in the Vedas someplace that there's no Brahman without a knower. Um, in other words, that, that Brahman, the, the, the living, to, living the experience of totality, isn't going to happen unless there's a knower to know it. And, uh, and that knower, that implies some individual structure. Yeah. 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 I will say, the Brahman needs the individual for the Brahman to know itself. The Brahman is the knower, but it knows through a vehicle, yeah. through, through a manifestation of itself, by individualizing itself in time and space to have a context and to have experience. And that way it can realize what it is. Which, yeah. which kind of gives you a, a, a nice theory for why we even have a universe uh, in the first place. It's like, yeah. you know, this whole show is, I mean, maybe it seems kind of anthropomorphic or what, egocentric or something, but this, the, the whole manifestation of the universe seems to have, well, you, in your, let's get to, the, to your thing here. You talk about the enlightenment drive. And I, I get the sense that in the enlightenment drive is not just uh, essential to, it's not just a, a kind of an individual drive within us as individuals, but it's, it's intrinsic to the entire universe. There's this sort of force of evolution, which we might call the enlightenment drive, that's just been orchestrating and evolving everything to the point where human beings can have conversations about reality like this, based yeah. on living the experience I, of it. I, I, I have the same view that the enlightenment drive is behind the evolutionary drive, for instance, and how life evolves until life is able to experience things and wonder about it and understand how come it is experiencing things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, but the enlightenment drive 
appears specifically in human beings at some point as the drive or the need and the longing to know reality, to know God, to know themselves. Yeah. But it's always operative in that direction until we recognize it consciously. Yeah. Would you even say perhaps that all desire is, the enlightenment drive is fundamental to all desire, desire for a new car, desire for a new partner or something, but one is just kind of seeking a little bit in the wrong direction and, and one reaches a certain stage at which one recognizes, oh, you know, that which I've been looking for all over the place, that's, that enlightenment is, is the, thing, the thing I want to really find in order to fulfill that, that quest. Yeah, and it's actually part of my teaching, which is not in the book, mm -hmm. which is what is the relationship of the enlightenment drive to what I call the instinctual drives. Drive for survival, drive for company, drive for you know, sexual pleasure, the, the main drives in human life, mm -hmm. which all desires come from. And of course, those drive emerge in life earlier, you know, like in animals and until human primates, they begin to have the social drive. Until we become human, and we and we have all the three drives together, and then there emerge the enlightenment drive, and the enlightenment drive can show itself to be underlying all those drive, and part of the work of of any path is how to harmonize those drives those basic animal instinctual drive when the enlightenment drive by showing that they are really fundamentally expressions of it mm. they're sort of primitive initial expression well to make life happen to make life survive sexual drive you know without sexual drive there won't be people after a while <laughs> you know so nobody will a survival drive if we don't survive nobody will have a chance to find that so all that are serving the the the, survive, the enlightenment drive but you know the usual the ego self takes them for as the ultimate thing before their satisfaction is the purpose of life and that's when people get into trouble because they think that's final I, I just need to satisfy I just need to survive yeah. or I just need to have sexual satisfaction or just I need to have the right company if you just stay with that you stay what's called a conventional life and the, and those drives don't evolve don't develop but when somebody who has their enlightenment drive awakened it's part of awakening the enlightenment drive become conscious and you, it becomes the drive in our life and that then of course it comes into clash and, con and conflict with those original uh, instinctual drive with all their desires until we understand them and harmonize by, rec by recognizing at some point that they really were initial expression of that enlightenment drive. Then they become harmonized, so the drive for, uh, for instance, for company, the social drive, becomes, we recognize, ultimately is the drive for intimacy. And intimacy is one way of experiencing our true nature. And the drive for sexuality is ultimately is the drive for union. Union with the beloved, the ultimate. And the survival drive is recognizing that it doesn't make sense not to survive because we are something that doesn't die. So if you really understand the survival drive, you realize at some point you, you want to survive because at the deep level, 
you know you 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 are indestructible that's very interesting so it's, yeah. it's like you're saying you can see kind of uh, faint shadows of the qualities of true nature in the more sort of superficial drives that that drive yeah. all all beings even not only people i mean squirrels and yeah, cows yeah. and every, everything else that they're all kind of reflecting qualities as it were of true nature and but uh, you know when the enlightenment drive really wakes up in a human being then those qualities are kind of recognized directly and uh, rather than pursuing shadows one pursues the thing in its yeah, that, in, in that a become, direct way yeah that becomes what's called the work of actualization mm -hmm. which is not just awakening but actualizing I mean, to live the awakening which means to bring those forces uh, which are deep in a human psyche to bring them in alignment with the awakened condition. Yeah. So to serve it, it becomes like energies for practice instead of opposing or distracting forces. There's a lot of talk about that sort of thing these days in contemporary spiritual circles. There's a lot of people talking about embodiment and some people even specializing in helping people embody their relation, their, their realization and so on. It's like we, people went through a phase where there was this, a lot of people were having non-dual realization but they were running around saying there is no person and, and kind of negating their, um, their humanity. And, and right. these days there seems to be a growing popularity to integrate, as you've just been saying, uh, our, our humanity with our sort of non-dual or, or deeper nature. Well, I'm glad that that's happening because, you know, that's been my perspective all along, mm -hmm. that, you know, our humanity is the way our realization expresses itself. I mean, how else? I mean, uh, but I know, you know, when you, we are, and you are in the non-dual condition, you don't find a person around. Right. So it's easy to dismiss the human being. Say, well, I'm just the Brahman. <laughs> right? I'm laughing. And, and, yeah, and you, it's true, you are the Brahman, fundamentally, but the Brahman always expresses itself through an individual, because you still have to go to the bathroom do things like that. I know, I just laugh because I was listening to something recently by Jeff Foster, you may know Jeff Foster, yeah. and he was talking about an incident where his brother told him to wash the dishes, and he went into this non-dual rap of, oh, you're so ignorant, you don't understand that I am not a person, you know, and, and there are no dishes, and things like that. And he, he, of course, was laughing at himself for having spoken that way, but uh, some people seem to go through that kind of phase. <laughs> well, I mean, that's... So how do you do the dishes when there are no dishes? That becomes a Zen calm. <laughs> I guess okay. you just chop wood, carry water, you know, you just do the dishes. Yeah, you do the dishes, although they're, they're, you know, they're not fundamental, that's something that's changing, you know, and then maybe reality is more fundamental than that, but the, still, one has to carry, uh, carry on with that. I mean, that is one thing, for instance, I see the distinction, for instance, between Zen and Vajrayana Buddhism, for instance. And what? Your, your audio Vajrayana, is breaking up a little bit. Vajrayana, Vajrayana Buddhism, uh -huh. Buddhism. They're both expression of what's called Mahayana Buddhism. But they really talk about realization. If you study Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism, they're all talking about experiencing the pure awareness which is the fundamental of the Dharmakaya, 
right? The Dharmakaya or the fundamental nature of thing, which is pure, empty, vast awareness. That is the nature of everything. That is the emphasis, and that's what they try to actualize in Tibetan Buddhism. And then, although they know about that, that's not for them what's important. What's important for them is what's the relation of that in everyday life. So for them, as you said, carrying wood, you know, carrying water, chopping wood, is the expression of that vastness in everyday life. Mm -hmm. So the conjunction between the particular and the formless is for them what is needed to, to be learned. So it's a different kind of emphasis. So as a result, it brings different realization, different ways of talking about it. And I find both to be instructive and useful. Yeah. And, and they're different, again, from a Sufi or Christian or Kabbalah or a, and each one sort of got a, a correct piece of the pie, let's say. It seems to me that if you're going to deny the reality of dishes and use that as, a, as an excuse for not washing them, then you, in the same breath you're going to have to deny the, the reality of food and let yourself starve to death, you know, because the, the dishes are no less real or more real than the food. <laughs> I agree. So, I mean, nobody ignores that. I mean, regardless how we realize and they are. I mean, I know in India sometimes there are gurus who don't do anything. Their students take care of them all the time. Right. Right? But they still have to eat. And they still have to go to the bathroom and change their clothes and all of that. They just don't have the skills to take care of life because they haven't actualized that part. They haven't practiced it. Yeah. You know, they're just sitting in samadhi and that's what they know. But even somebody sitting in samadhi will still have to go to the bathroom, regardless of whether the bathroom is real or not. Let me uh, come back to my notes here a little bit and start with and talk about something that you, we started with in this interview. You were talking about the paradox of practice that realization, uh, and I'll elaborate a bit on what you said earlier, yeah. that realization often happens without being connected with the practices. Sometimes it's spontaneous. Right. People haven't had any interest in any kind of spiritual thing and they have some profound realization. And other times, well, who was it? I forget the guy's name. Some Zen guy, uh, he, I've been told his name, but he was famous for saying, enlightenment may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident-prone. And so there's this interplay or this question of individual intention and will versus God's grace. God right. helps those who help themselves is a famous phrase. Right. Uh, um, and Patanjali says that realization comes most quickly to those who have vehement intensity in their, in their desire for it. So there are all right. these kind of points on different sides of the argument. Right. Yeah, so that uh, brings us to discussing what I call the dynamic of realization. Mm -hmm. What is the dynamic? What happens? So, as we see, you can practice, you can meditate, you can do prayers or centering prayers or chanting or visualization or whatever kind of practice. And if you just do that by itself, much of the time, nothing hap can happen, you know, it might, might not happen. But sometimes does happen, some things open up, and the interesting thing, besides the fact that sometimes things happen regardless whether you're practicing or not, is sometimes when, you, when the practice works and you see things happening, in my experience, I realize that 
even when things happen after practice, there is something else that made the experience happen. It wasn't just the practice. Like some other force that we could call grace. Without it, the practice wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't work. And because I see, I have seen it many times, and that's why I formulated that kind of part of teaching, is that when the experience happens, I realize something was going on for some time, leading to this that I didn't know about. That wasn't my own doing. Mm -hmm. That got me into this experience. Some other force was already in charge. And I give different examples in, in, in the book, but recognizing that even our own efforts are nothing but the grace itself appearing ourself as our effort. I like that point. Because remember, the individual is an expression of the ultimate. They're not separate. Right. So whatever the individual does is the, the, the true nature itself functioning or manifest because of the, its enlightenment drive is, is manifesting, but appearing in us as our will or our dedication. And, and, and we can own that will, or we can own that dedication and owning it it actually becomes one of the obstacles. You it, know, as many yeah. teachers, you have to give up. You don't own it, it's not yours. Hmm. And when you realize it's not yours, things open up. A question came in, let me read a question. What in your experience is the greatest obscuration to self-realization? Someone said, this seems silly for me to ask at the moment. Is there a paradox here in the personal will? And this is related to what we're saying. Is there a paradox here in the personal will versus the will of the one? As I am seeing more and more the arrogance of believing that of myself I can do anything, then the question is, who is it that creates the obscuration and who or what is removing it? Is it time to just ride the wave and watch how life unfolds itself here on its way to realizing itself? Or is there paradoxically an independent will that either works for or against the will of life? Good question. Yeah, there are many questions in that question. Yeah. And Obviously, the, the main obstacle, all teachings agree on that, is the belief in and identifying with the separate self. Mm -hmm. To believe I am a separate, independent self that have my own will and my own choices, that is the main obstacle. And it has many aspects and expression of it, you know, desire or attachment, or the, but all amounts to believing that you are a unit in time and space with your own volition and that you are going to maybe get enlightened or not or you want to accomplish one thing or not. That's the freedom from that is really the, the main thing in any kind of, of awakening. The question is, it's an interesting thing, where does the ignorance or where does the delusion come from, right? So. That's why I think that some non-dual teachers, for instance, they have non-dual experience, but think dualistically by saying, you know, reality is pure consciousness, and if you're not realized, you are deluded. You have an illusion that you are a separate individual. Well, if you say there's only consciousness, there's nothing but, how can there be somebody there who is deluded? It can't be. 
And the rea reality, it is nothing but reality itself that is deluded in that location. Reality itself is still hasn't developed in that location to, for its illumination to shine bright, to reveal itself. So reality in all over the universe is, man is evolving. That's when you bring in the question of evolving. Things are evolving, life is evolving in different degrees of awareness and luminosity. And part of the stage of development is experiencing reality in a way we call it deluded. And I also have uh, a view of what we, whether ego experience is delusional or not. Because many teaching think it's deluded. Think of it this way, Rick. How many people are deluded in the world? Almost all. <laughs> if by, Almost all. By that, usually, but yeah. And according to non-dual truth or fundamental reality, or whatever we call it, they're all expression of the same reality. How can they all be wrong? Why, why so many of them wrong? So that's why I tend to think about it, that the ego way of experiencing things as se separateness and duality and all of that, as not as much, is not exactly itself a delusion, it is just one of the ways that reality appears. Believing that is the true way, and that's the only way, is the delusion. But it is one of the ways reality appears is dualistic. How about if we look at it this way? As we were saying earlier, if the, the universe arose in order to eventually produce beings who could become living embodiments of reality, breathing, thinking, talking, loving, speaking, eating, re embodiments of reality, then those beings didn't evolve overnight, either physically or as souls. Yeah. And so there was going to have to be a developmental process. Yeah. And you're not going to have enlightened amoebas oozing around. You have to have more complex life forms before you can actually have anything that we would meaningfully call enlightenment. And so it's necessary, just in a developmental sense, for there to be various degrees and stages of ignorance if we contrast ignorance with enlightenment, in which one is deluded or seeing only dimly, what was that verse in the, in the Bible, uh, through a glass darkly, and that, you know, one isn't going to go from Neanderthal man to the Buddha in one snap. It's going to have to be a developmental process, and you get closer and closer to the point at which you enlight the enlightenment drive becomes conscious. Yeah, so... I agree with you, that sounds like a good way of looking at things, mm -hmm. but I think of it as a way of looking at things. I'm not saying that's not, not the only way. I'm well, saying one way of explaining it's, it. It's a good way of explaining it. It's useful. That is what I call the progressive or the hierarchical way of looking at things. Like things are evolving and developing until reality, so until life can become sentient and look at itself and recognize what the hell is happening. So that is one way, and it is one of the major ways in most teachings actually do it. However, if you look at it from the perspective of reality itself, reality itself is not sitting there judging, this is primitive, this is advanced. It is just manifesting itself one way, this way, and now it's an amoeba, now is a human, deluded human being, 
now as an enlightened human, it's always the same reality manifesting itself that way. Mm -hmm. And it itself doesn't say one is more developed than the other. It's just different ways of manifesting itself. That is another way of seeing it. And you I don't think that the way you just said and the way I just said are actually contradictory. They, they're both, they're not they're both true. Yeah, they're both, I'm just saying the different ways. Each one of them has its usefulness. And the way I'm, I'm mentioning it, that, that rea reality is always reality. Right, how can it be so, other? And to call it deluded is from a certain perspective, from a certain other experience. Mm. But when it is happening, it is what is happening. And I'm saying this because this is actually what happens when realization becomes established and certainty is there and comfort and one so established in realization, you don't care in what state you are in. And then what happens is that whatever it is, it is the truth. <laughs> whatever is happening, you see, you don't need to be seeing neon light for you to be enlightened. You know, so having your cup of tea is the same thing as being the vastness of Brahman. The mind doesn't compare the two. And there too, it's not an either-or situation. You can be yeah. the vastness of Brahman while enjoying your cup of tea, right? Yeah, you can be both or one, then the other, and it doesn't matter. So the progressive way, the evolution is a very useful way. In fact, it helps one understand things and put things in a certain order. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to our human mind. But if you, if you think of reality as not just human, if you, if you take the human way of looking at it and just leave it to reality, it just keeps transforming from one way or another. Yeah, I suppose and another all, way of... Oh, go all, ahead. Of them are, all of them are real, all of them are reality, you see. Another way of putting it might be that reality isn't becoming more real. Real, reality itself isn't progressing and becoming realer and realer. It, it, you know, it's just, it is what it is. But, yeah. but we as appreciators of reality, as livers of reality, can continually enhance our capacity to do that. Yeah, and we can say, like, certain ways of reality manifest itself has suffering more than other ways. Yeah. Some of the ways that people cannot call the conventional deluded way is really reality manifesting itself, but manifesting itself in a way that has a lot of suffering. Other ways it manifests itself, it has more bliss. Which is a very good point, because some people take the point you just made, oh, everything is real just as it is, and use that as a, a, an alibi for not having any spiritual aspirations whatsoever. Why should I bother? Everything is real just as it is. But as far as you are concerned, as a, a living being, there are qualitative differences, and you know, it, you could, it could be a lot more enjoyable if you were living a life without suffering. You well, know? I mean, that's what I said. What I just said, the view, the non-hierarchical view, which is whatever, any moment, whatever it is, is reality, that one can be in that place after going through the whole path. You, can't, you cannot do it at the beginning when you're still just in one condition. You're not free to go to the other conditions. Right. So the other condition, when you say everything, there is a freedom. Anything can happen. One day is Brahman, next day is Shiva, the next day is the Divine, the next day is Shunyata. All this happened. Well, if, if you haven't done the practices, 
you're only staying at this individual who's striving to be successful in life. That's it. You're limited. So while they both sound the same, one has lots of limitation and the other one doesn't have the limitations. And here's a little quote from your book that relates just to what you said. You said, we have to experience and understand and embody all kinds of spiritual dimensions and all kinds of enlightenment in order to be free and to accept our everyday ordinariness without it having to be anything else. And that's really the freedom. But we can't do that until we know lots of things. We know I have to see spiritual lights, consciousness, awareness, emptiness, and all of those have to be realized and you have to live them. And in fact, I, by studying some of the traditions, you know, I, I noticed that and rarely mentioned in the text usually, but it's usually toward the end or some people mention them, and that the masters actually, that's how they live. They don't care what state they're in. It's not that they're always in bliss or even being bliss or not, is not relevant at some point. And that is a kind of freedom. It's the freedom like the enlightenment drive has fulfilled its function. So life, life or being is free to unfold in whichever way. It's part, in other ways, revelation of our potential become loosened, becomes free to, to actualize itself. While in the limited way, the first way of experiencing things that people come from, we could say, well, I don't need to do anything. No, the fact is that you haven't actualized yet. You can't actualize in that condition. Many, much of you, much of the potential is not yet actualized. In the other way, although it sounds the same, it's ordinary, but the potential is free to actualize itself. Here's a couple points that relate to that. Well, here's, here's a point from your book. You, you said, uh, realization is not the end of practice. Practice is the ceaseless orientation toward reality. And when I read that, you know, I, I was sort of thinking about the type of master that you were just describing who in a way is resting on his laurels. There's, there's been such a profound degree of realization that the kind of effort and diligence and striving and so on that are often associated with the word practice are not um, relevant to his experience. He's just you know, living that reality and, and is a state of freedom regardless of what happens. But you say that, you know, practice never ends. And so if practice never ends, does practice kind of change its quality where it becomes so automatic that it's completely spontaneous and one doesn't feel that one is doing anything in particular, but there's just a, a deeply ingrained habit, kind of like the way when you, you, you know, you learn to ride a bicycle and it just becomes second nature after a while and you don't think about balancing. It's sort of like that. It's more like practice become the expression of realization mm -hmm. instead of the other way around. Realization becomes the ground from where practice comes. So practicing becomes an orientation about life, interest in the truth, and being authentic, authentic and openness and all of that. Not forgetting that, recognizing and becoming spontaneous natu naturally that way. And also, not only that, the great masters, they continue to meditate, do their usual discipline practices. Mm -hmm. They don't. They don't stop. Is, See, is that, that just? Not, a, is that just to set an example, or is that to actually, you know, gain some benefit themselves, or both? No, that, because that is how their realization wants to express itself. Mm. 
to continue to because and also nobody finishes the actualization actualization is an endless process of being more and more what you are even the greatest master who were enlightened and, be, and they are themselves haven't seen everything about reality can't see everything so continual uh, practice means you could you keep seeing more of reality not because you need to but you love to it's the enlightenment drive that, again that's yeah that's life moving that, you on your life yeah that becomes your life greater more discovery different kind of ways of creativity and seeing things and expressing yourself and all that i think we have to keep coming back to the idea to, to reminding ourselves that um, we're not just talking about individuals realizing something. We're talking about total true reality or, or being realizing itself through its expressions. Why would it want to stop? Or why, why? Would, it, why would it want to say, okay, that's enough. I've realized enough you know, through this expression and there couldn't possibly be any more. As long as the expression is living and breathing, there could be the possibility of some further refinement. Exactly. For further refinement... Not just refinement, new discoveries. New discoveries, yeah. Because the fundamental truth is so mysterious, indeterminate, it can appear so many ways. And each one of them is greater illumination or different kind of illumination, let's put it that way. It illuminates different angle, different thing, and uh, it shows a different possibility, different uh, capacity, you know. Like, you know, you could be a realized master, but not know how to talk to your students intelligently, for instance. There have been some. Yeah. There have been many. Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah. even among the contemporary spiritual teachers, we see a, yeah. quite a wide range of capabilities in terms of clarity of expression. Yeah, and so that continual practice will hone those skills. That's part of it. Because the skills need time to develop. Okay, here's something I like. Slight, slight change of topic from what we were just discussing. You said discernment, discrimination, understanding, love, intelligence have to mature because practice uses these faculties. I kind of like that. I'd like you to elaborate on that a little bit. For practice to really happen, to mature, as you said, practice involves being able to focus, to concentrate without distraction being able to discern what arises and clarity meaning that we see what we see without the prejudices of our previous beliefs and ideas and these don't only just become liberated first they become liberated from the influences of the past and but then there is a process of maturation because we're talking about capacities faculties these faculties don't just open up all at once. It's just like exercising a muscle. It gets better and better and better. So these are faculties that the more they are developed, not only they, uh, they help our practice, because practice is, relies on all of those. It relies on concentration, discernment, clarity, and steadiness, and all that, but also they're instrumental in our expressing our realization, our life, expressing what we are, you know, in our work and our relationship and our movement and our interactions and 
what we put out to the world, we can express it more effectively, more efficiently, you know, mm. more heartfully, more intelligently. And so all those, this is a process of development that all teachers are in process of development. As you notice, teachers mature, they don't stay the same. And that's true. Yeah, they, they get better and some of, them, some of them don't. Some of them continue saying the same thing, <laughs> see? Yeah. But some mature and develop, you can see there's more maturation, there's more simplicity or more directness or more precision, all kind of ways it can develop or more heartfulness or more practicality and all of that, all of those ways that, that where, because these, these are the development of the individual consciousness itself and the human being. Because being itself, or true nature itself, doesn't develop, it has different ways of being. But the instrument develops. It the body and mind develop. It almost seems there's a correlation between the teachers who continue to say the same things and those who, in their philosophy, um, say that this realization is all there is. Once one has had a kind of fundamental non-dual realization, what more could there be? And it, it seems that if one gets locked into that concept, it tends to uh, result in uh, a stagnation in terms of their expression, not evolving significantly over time. Whereas those who, who say, well, this is a great milestone, but, I'm, but there seem to be more, there seems to be more, they continue to evolve in their expressions. Yeah. Continue to be more in terms of what I can be and more in terms of how I can express it. Hmm. How I can live it. There are all in both sides of it. Would you say that um, what you're just saying about developing faculties being useful in terms of living and expressing reality would, would that include even conventional education? You know, I mean, getting a really good education um, in I think that, physics yeah. or literature or whatever you're you're attracted yeah. to. Yeah, that that includes that, and that way hooking hook, into. Uh, what people know on what people are learning at the present time and using that language you know, as, as bridges. So sometimes I use the la language of science, sometimes I use the language of philosophy, you know, different kind of uh, ways that help people you know, connect. Because spiritualization is a very subtle thing. It's, it's sort of a, uh, seeing the invisible. And uh, if you just keep telling the person, you know, you're the self, you just need to know that you are the self. It doesn't do much for most people. For, for most people, you know, I, I, I'm having trouble with my wife. First, I want to deal with that. I can't get my mind off that. So you have to help them how to get their mind off that problem before they can listen to and appreciate saying you are the self. And that's a skill, you see. Not everybody has. How does that compare with seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee? In other words, that tapping into the deeper reality will help to sort out all your relative problems. That's another way, it's true. Some people have the realization phase. That brings in the, what are the stages? There's realization, there's actualization. Some teaching say first there is realization and then actualization happen after that. Mm -hmm. Some people say first actually in the sense you get mature and, and then uh, the fruit of that there is realization.
And my path is more like they go hand, they're, they're intertwined. Yeah. The more realization, the more actualization they go. Yeah, there are different ways of uh, the path do it. I think the intertwined thing actually makes more practical sense because it's very unlikely that you're going to have you know, completely realization to the extent that realization can be had. And then once that's finished, you're going to start integrating it. It would seem to me that you take a step of realization, a step of integration, a step of realization, a step of integration. And it just kind of keeps developing that way that's, over time. I think that, that's how it happens to most people. But yeah. it does happen sometimes that people have big realization and it takes them a long time to integrate it. Yeah, and sometimes they can't function for a couple of some years. Some of them don't, don't function for a while. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, you probably hear the story of Mahar Baba, for instance. No, he, what was the story? The way he, he couldn't function. He was sort of unconscious, or, yeah. and he needed help from other masters of how to function in the world. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of stories like that, actually. You know, Amma, the, the so-called hugging saint, she went through a phase yeah. where she, she would just fall down in samadhi and, and yeah. be lying on the ground, you know, and just be, be unable to speak or do anything. And uh, it, it took a while to, to develop the... Yeah, so that, that happened. So mm -hmm. we, we don't want to discount that, even though the intertwined ones seem to happen most. Most commonly, most. yeah. Yeah, most commonly, yeah. Yeah. Here's another little tidbit from your book. Um, we practice without a particular goal because having a goal implies we know what is supposed to happen next. Yeah. So you can second guess God. <laughs> but so. then again, people read all these books and they get all these ideas which become goals. They think, oh, well, this, this experience is possible and this state is possible and so on. So you can't help but have, kind of, have those things in the back of your mind as possibilities. Yeah, and that, that's true. And that's part of the danger of writing about these things and talking about them. But the, I, I'm referring actually more about many teaching who have a particular goal. They said, our goal is Shanyata. Mm -hmm. Our goal is Brahman. Our goal is union with God. And the person is feeling they have, that's where they need to go. So you're putting it in your mind. And I'm saying, if you do it that way, that becomes a barrier after a while. Yeah. See, yeah, that becomes an obstacle. And not only becomes an obstacle, because you're already you're trying to make things happen where trying to make things happen is standing in god's way in some sense and or trying to twist god's arms and because also you don't know what's the next thing to happen so how can you try to force it to happen that way when the next moment is unknowable not only that but having a goal implies the belief that reality is going to be that way finally, and that will be the end. When my view is that, no, uh, all the goals are true as manifestations of reality. And for you, it might be a different one, not the one you have in mind. Perhaps we could use science as a nice metaphor here, where a scientist, if he pursues his research with very specific discovery in mind that he knows he has to make, yeah. Who knows? I mean, chances are he'll just waste his time, you know, like an, even, even like an archaeologist who goes out and think, I am going to find this particular kind of dinosaur by yeah. digging, digging around in the dirt. He, he, rather, he would have the attitude of, yeah, there's probably dinosaurs in this area. I'll dig around and see what comes up, and I don't have any idea what it might be. 
Yeah, and there are many stories how things have been discovered in science by some kind of accident or mistake. Or yeah, yeah. Penic penicillin was discovered that way. It was just a total accident. It's like, again, about the practice and grace. You need to do the work. However, at some point, you need to sort of be free from that goal of doing the practice for grace to have a chance to break through. Huh. Well, actually, I brought up penicillin. It brings up an interesting example because, as I recall, the guy who discovered penicillin, this mold kept growing in his petri dishes, and it was ruining his experiments. And he kept thinking, "How am I going to deal with this mold?" And then he kind of just he realized eventually that, "Oh, this, this mold has very interesting properties." Yes. So there could be things coming up in our experience as a spiritual practitioner, which we might consider obstacles, but which might actually be very useful areas for exploration. Oh, yeah, that's. I happened to me myself for my first discovery of presence, what I call presence, which is an important part of my teaching. At the beginning, I didn't know. It was arising in me in some kind of way. I said, What's this thing happening in my body? It's like, some, it's like I thought it was tension or pressure or something. And I was trying to sort of get rid of it. I was getting headaches and all that. I thought it was a problem. Mm. It took me a while to recognize no. You know, when I didn't, try to get rid of it, and then try to uh, make it go away or change it, it showed itself as this luminous kind of presence. Interesting. Say. Yeah. That kind of gets us to a point of, takes us back to something we were talking about earlier about grace, where if you, if you have a trust in a, a kind of a, a higher intelligence, if you want to call it that, which has our best interest in mind and which is helping to guide our process, then you can perhaps be more accepting of things which come up and see the potential value in them rather than seeing them as obstacles. Yeah, like you, you see them as have the potential value or as everything is a conduit, can be seen as a conduit to like a wormhole to another way of experiencing. Yeah. Nice. Okay, here's another tidbit from your book. The view of totality can hold both dual and non-dual perspectives simultaneously by being outside both of them, or I, I put in my own parentheses, or by containing yeah. both of them. It, yeah. ho it holds all views, known and unknown. When we fully understand this view, we don't need to stick to any particular view, yet we can take a particular view without having to adhere to it as final. So that's more letting being operate in the, in spontaneously. Mm -hmm. without us making the choice of how it should operate. And part of the freedom of being, what I call the dynamism of being, the fact that being or true nature, it's okay. even saying being, I'm trying to, people can take it as a fixed way, that being means your being, your existence. I'm using being in a more general way just to refer to whatever this nameless thing. The freedom of being to reveal itself in our personal experience, uh, a lot of it has to do with our view of reality. Because there is the conventional view of reality that everybody believes in. There is a non-dual view of reality. Everything is non-dual, everything is the expression of the same consciousness. And I'm saying these are actually views. And if you're really confident, if you have true trust, in being and its goodness, you don't need to hold a view. You don't need to adhere to it as this is the, the view of what is real. And I have to sort of believe it. You take it as that's what's useful now. 
and reality might change tomorrow or the next month and reveal a different view and operate through a different view. So you're saying that you're going to have views, but you're just not going to be rigid about them. Yeah. The idea is that views are useful because you operate in the world from always a certain perspective, a certain view. Mm -hmm. So views part of reality. Each state has its view. Each state, if you stay in for a while, it has its view, its way of looking at things. But the idea is not to be rigid, but to be fluid, to allow our mind be not needing to fix, not to needing to believe in something. So, not believe in something as has to be that way. I yeah. don't mean not, not believing that it can happen that way, but it can happen that way, but it doesn't have to happen that way. I've heard so that. There's a freedom of view, there's a freedom of fluidity of experience. I've heard that as a, as a definition of humility, actually, the quality of not insisting that things happen in any particular way. And you can apply it not only to happenings, but to beliefs and views, you know, not insisting that my particular perspective is the right one and everybody else is wrong or inferior. Yeah, it's not all, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's what happens. Unfortunately, many of the spiritual teachings, even the great tradition, they believe they got it. And the other traditions, sort of partial or maybe a little approximation. They, all, they even say it, the great, even the great masters. Mm -hmm. And I think taking that view, taking one view and saying that's it, is the beginning of fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. I agree. That's how fundamentalism begins. Even though it's an enlightened place, if you say it, it, it has to be that way, then you're excluding others, other ways of being it. And by excluding them, you're becoming, you're turning to become fundamentalist because you're, you have to stick to that particular way. Yeah. And I think this is actually a, a very deep point and it's germane to a lot of the stuff you discuss in your book because if, you know, if we think of ourselves as sort of uh, individual lenses through which we, we have a vision of, of reality, a taste of reality, and there could be many other tastes, you know, then Obviously, each lens is going to have its own perspective, but if we, if we take a God's eye view of things, then at least conceptually we can understand that a God's eye view is going to contain every perspective that might possibly exist and harmonize them all, you know, contain them all comfortably without any conflict or difficulty. Yeah, and it, it is part of a certain kind of realization that makes that more possible. And that's why I bring in in the book the view of totality, which means the view that allows any view, all views, and open to them. But I bring in the, what I call total being. Mm -hmm. It's not just being, total being. I use that language because uh, for two reasons that are really important for us to go over. One reason is that when people talk about being, or consciousness. They think of everything now. They think of the now, of this moment. Right. Everything I experience now, I am everything, right? I am the totality of this being, right? I am everything, and, and they're thinking of in the now, and that, although it is the usual classical mystical experience of the oneness of being, or the non-duality of consciousness, it still excludes other times. 
excludes the experiences of other times. Total being is recognizing that the unity, not just in space, but also in time. Well, I think that those who emphasize on the now would argue that there are no other times. You know, there never is a future. There, there never is a past. You can't step one second into the future or one second into the past. Future and past and time itself are kind of concepts and that all there is is the eternal now. How, how, that, would, you, how would you respond that, to that? That is the non-dual view. I understand that when I experience it, but I also know another way. Another way that other traditions have talked about. I don't know if you read uh, Dogen Zenji. No. Zen master, founder of Soto Zen. He has a teaching called Uji, which means being time. He says, there's only the moment, but the moment is all being. But being is all time. So this moment is all times. So for him, being and time, are, he, he makes being time. People think of being as extending a space. He thinks being extended state and time. So he doesn't eliminate time. It is always now, but this now contains all the, all the nows of, of all other moments. Because think of it, if you are in the presence of the now, right now, yesterday you were also on the now. Is that now different from this now? Same now. It's the same now. That means this now contains yesterday's moment. So this moment contains yesterday's moment. If you look at it that way, you begin to have an experience that I'm not only all things in the world, I'm all things at all times. Yeah. So you can, so the non-dual become what I call total being, which means being that doesn't only contains everything in the moment, but contains everything at all moments, hmm. at all moments for all experiencing individuals. It's a different kind of unity. It's, it's a more expanded unity that doesn't say it's true. There is no other moment. In fact, Dogen himself says this moment is cut off from other moments. It doesn't have a past. It doesn't have future. Mm -hmm. The way he says that is not because there are no other moments. All other moments are included in this moment. Yeah. They're not negated. They are negated as a sequence. My most and popular as are they all now. My most popular interview was with a woman named Anita Morjani, who had this really profound near-death experience, and um, she said that what she cognized when she had this near-death experience is that all of our past lives and all are not something that happened in the past. We're actually living them simultaneously in the now, and that somehow as individuals we just create this filter which yep. gives us yep. a sense of linearity with yeah. time, but that actually yeah. time is not so linear. That's one consequence of understanding time. So this realization, total being, it brings time back into the timelessness and has timelessness times together, hmm. where timelessness include, they don't exclude each other. So when you have both time and timelessness, then being is truly free of time. Because if, if being is only timeless, it is dependent on the negation of time. However, if being doesn't negate time, neither affirm it, there is time and timelessness, and being contains both. So one, I, I can be timeless, 
or can be in time, or can be timeless, and I'm, I'm aware of time pa passing. At the same time. It doesn't pass in me, it passes in all phenomena, because all phenomena is changing. Mm. But being itself, time doesn't pass because time is within it. Yeah. You see, so it always feels now, in fact, for me, I don't feel now anymore. It used to feel now. I just don't feel time. Hmm. To say now, I'm only re also relating it to time. When you're free of time, there's no now, there isn't even a sense of the, this moment. Things are much more fluid than that. Hmm. I'm aware of time, I'm aware of clock time, I can, I can look at my watch and I can uh, know time is coming close to finish talking about something. All this awareness there, but my sense of myself, I'm independent of time. Sam. Independent of time, but can, I can also experience myself the way I was 10 years ago. So when you say you're... So that time is still now. When you say you're independent of time, you don't just mean that, you know, you, there's a kind of a timeless awareness that persists while temporal events roll along. You, you're also saying that, well, like you just said, you can experience yourself the way you were 10 years ago, or maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. So you're saying that somehow those times are contained in, within your perspective, within your awareness. Yeah. And I, yes, I am saying that, but I'm also saying I don't experience myself as timeless awareness. I experience myself where the idea of time or timelessness don't apply. Hmm. Because I'm free for the concept of time. Okay. If you're free of the concept of time, you don't talk about timelessness. Yeah. So you're still using the word time, the concept of time. So a true freedom from the concept, the whole notion of time, it's, I can be timeless, I can be in time, can have both together, or the usual thing, which I have neither of those. I mean, they, I can think about them, they happen, I can experience them, what they have to do with me. Is time nothing but a concept? Einstein talked about space-time, and you're a physicist, and so you understand this better than I do, but it sounds like he was talking about space and time as being kind of the fabric of creation, and, and it seems to my mind to have given it some kind of um, fundamental reality, as opposed to just a human concept. Okay, that's a good question, Rick, about time, space, and time. It brings back Kant, Immanuel Kant, and he talks about the categories of experience, and he has, and he said there are categories of thought, and there are a priori category was always there, and one of them time and space. He thought they're always there. You can't have experience without them, so he thought they are made by God. That's what he, what Newton actually believed: time and space made by God. So the way I think of time and space, they are concepts, but they are concepts in the mind of being. They oh, are not concept created by human beings. Mm. Although human being can use them, utilize them, and sort of reify them and make them more concrete, more linear. But the fact is that manifestation appears as extended in space and it seems to change. And we recognize that, we recognize the fundamental concept, what I call basic concepts that are inherent in being, you know, is not a human creation. It's conceptual in the sense you can go beyond them. 
that brings up a whole kettle of fish, which would, might be interesting to get into about, there's a whole chapter in your book about non-conceptuality and all, and maybe we'll want to touch upon that. But yeah. um, let me throw in a few questions here. Some, some nice questions came in from viewers watching the live stream. Yeah. Uh, here's one. He said, I've been engaging with a varied spiritual practice for the last 15 years, including the diamond approach and have, in the last few years, seen the fallacy of practicing in an ego-driven way, picking up more experiences, efforting, and so-called progressing. However, I now feel in a bit of a no-man's land, no impetus to practice, and nowhere to go. How does one practice without practicing? Well, first of all, it's important to really follow a path, make a path be more central. It's okay to practice many paths, as long as one of them is the central one you need to go deep into it for it to really bear its fruits right mm -hmm. so and practice without practicing is that's what they call motiveless practice motives of practice practice always motiveless however human being as we practice we don't know that first motivation is that we heard about it we hear you can be enlightened you see people and you admire them and you want to attain their kind of freedom and their kind of luminosity. So you have a motivation of practice because you want to accomplish that. And then the motivation can become more closer to you. You might feel the enlightenment drive itself as the drive to practice, which at some point can become a longing to be a reality or to be one with reality. Or at some point it can become as love, really loving to find out what is the truth. That becomes a motivation, right? On, on this so the motivation gets subtler and subtler until you are the true nature itself. From the perspective of true nature itself, as it continues to practice, it has no motive. It is its expression. Hmm. It is it's not practicing because of this or that. It's, it's a spontaneous intelligence it appears as practicing. And turns out we're always from the beginning doing it that way. However, being in this vast compassion appeared in us as interest, as love, as longing, all of that. And that is already the enlightened drive. But the enlightenment drive is just a drive. It's not a motive. Okay. But people, so practice without practice mean learning to be free from the motivation, but continue to practice. <laughs> that might sound kind of contradictory to people, but I understand what you're saying. And perhaps yeah. we could put a fine point on it by saying that when one is very much egocentric in one's perspective, then one usurps or attributes to oneself the, the, a motivation which is really much deeper than the individual drives. It's the, it's the enlightenment drive, as you say, which is a universal force. And exactly. we, we misappropriate it and, and say, right. oh, this is my drive. Yes. Uh, but then as we mature, it seems that this sense of my drive is dropping off. And one might, one might wonder, am I losing my motivation? Am I becoming disinterested right. in this stuff? Whereas right. in fact, it's just more of a relaxing into allowing the reality yeah. of what's been happening all along, which is that the the kind of universal enlightenment drive has been has been running the show. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of saying. It. And and one of the transition points in there is coming to a place where you feel there's no interest. Mm -hmm. There there is a sense of neutrality, not interested in anything. But 
if you've done, if you arrived at that place by practicing diligently for a long time, that is a real place. It's a transition to freedom. It feels like no interest, but what, what it turns out to be is that you don't need anything. You feel you don't need anything. So it appears at the beginning as a disinterest and not knowing what to do. Yeah. While after a while, it's like, you know, I'm practicing not because I need something, I'm practicing because that's how I'm expressing myself. Yeah, and I imagine you're you're really expressing your own your own experience here. Whereas there must have been times in your earlier years where there was this very sort of driven, desperate yeah. sense of seeking, and I need this, and I'm suffering, and I want to get out of suffering, and yada yada. But you know, these days you I mean you live and breathe this stuff all the time. But it's yeah. it's more like just a sort of a, an adventure and exploration without the sort of des yeah. desperate individual cravings attached yeah. to it. Yeah, uh, you're right. There was a time with intense desire and intense focus and desperation sometimes and frustration and disappointment and all that and and that part of the path one has to go through that yeah you see and then at some point when we are more in the condition of realization it's like it's easy and it's not just easy it's the spontaneous thing that uh, you pra and also practice has two kinds there is a formal practice which is you do you use your practice which is a, uh, chanting or sitting meditation or uh, it is a visualization or a prayer where you do it regularly as you've always done it before some enlightened master even do it more afterward and there is the practice of just the way we live our life. The way we live our life, we are expressing our realization and by expressing it faithfully is practice. So practice is all the time then. Mm -hmm. Not just this formal practice and the informal practice, which is just whatever happens. The way we are being, the way we are responding, the way we are interacting is really a practice because you're even that you're expressing yourself you're honing your skills as you're living your life, you see. You're honing your skill and you're allowing your true nature to come out more fully, but in newer and novel ways that are necessary for the new situations. Yeah, good. Well, I hope we've satisfied that question. Let me ask another one that came in. Could you say something more about how all times, and this is what we were talking about earlier, about how all times are here and now? I can relate to non-locality in terms of, in, in regards to space, but time? How can that actually be? What is it like to experientially realize timelessness? Well, you know, non-locality is something they even have in physics. They call it entanglement, mm -hmm. about, about how two particles far away, they know about each other, although there is no time has passed for them to communicate, so they're called entangled, so they're operating as if they are in the same place. Right, but they're maybe and, light years apart. Right, and they're finding out now that there are wormholes connecting them. Mm. Wormholes in time space, that's what they're finding. But what's a wormhole? Wormhole in time space mean there's no time and space in the wormhole. Since there is wormhole between them, they're sort of right on top of each other, although it appears in time as if they are very far apart. But in the wormhole, they're right there next to each other. So that's why they could 
So that's called non-locality. But they're finding out, their point I'm bringing here, they're finding out in physics there's non-locality in time, mm. not just in space. Like something happened in the past can be entangled with something in the present, something in the present can be entangled or connected with something in the future. Meaning that the time between them, the distance of time is also eliminated. Mm. There's wormholes between them. Interesting. So there's a wormhole in time. And Einstein actually did wormhole. Einstein's wormholes are in time, space-time, not just in space, right? That is really similar to the kind of realization I'm talking about of total being, where you're experiencing, first, there's a movement from time to now, to nowness, and then there's a move from nowness to timelessness. And there is a movement of, of timelessness to no time. And then in no time, you realize all time is here. Hmm. No time, because I am outside of time, I hold all of time. So it's, it's a subjective feeling, and which can, can manifest. So it's subjective in the sense, this is a feeling, um, I don't, and it is that, that's the important part about this. I forgot to say again, which is the role of the individual. We, we talk about how the individual expresses the formless. In this condition, the individual not only expresses the formless and the fastness; it contains the vastness. The particular individual, you as a party individual, actually contain the whole universe. From that, if you if you have that realization, you realize. You're not only expressing the whole universe, the whole universe is in you without you getting bigger. Yeah, actually I have a note here that I was going to ask you about from your book. You said each part contains the whole, the individual is the whole universe and contains all space and time, exactly what you've yeah. been saying. And uh, maybe we can just probe into that just a little bit because being, you could say, being is not compartmentalized. If my fist is essentially being, then is it just a tiny bit of being or if being is infinite and all pervading then you know what is within the totality of being has to also be within the being that's occupied by my fist does that make sense yeah and and that is actually seen by many people one of them is william blake when he says uh -huh. uh, uh, the whole universe in a flower or, or a great sand. Yeah, the uh, what is it? The eternity in an hour, infinity in a wildflower, and eternity in hours. And yeah. Yeah, and and the universe in a grain of sand. Right. And he, he uh, so it's it's literal. It's not just uh, yeah, poetic. It's not metaphorical that right. the whole universe expresses itself as a grain of sand. The grain of sand, you, it it is a kind of realization. It, it is getting into conscious and through nature and seeing some of its deeper properties. Mm. Its deeper properties is like it is inherently a wormhole to everything. It's a time-space-time space, space wormhole. It's connecting all objects to the same object. It's, it's like each object, because it's open to everything else, its openness is uh, free of the concept of time and space. So everything sort of collapses into it in some sense, you could say. Without it collapse, it's still vast, but within the particular. Yeah. It's a kind of realization and it is sort of counterintuitive. It's difficult to sort of 
believe that because it's easier to think of the being as extended and vast, and it is extended and vast, but in this kind of realization, the infinite and the finite are within each other. Like the finite contains the infinite, which is counterintuitive, but that's what happens in this realization. I find so it more intuitive than that, counterintuitive. It contains the, the infinite of space, but the infinite of time, too. Yeah, I, I definitely I find it more intuitive than counterintuitive. I mean, it really okay. makes sense. Maybe the phrase infinite correlation would be handy here, where every point of creation is directly correlated with every other point of creation because every point of creation contains the whole creation. And that, yeah. that could explain non-locality. Non I mean, how does this particle over here communicate with this particle on the other side of the galaxy? Well, yeah. they're directly connected, you know, yeah. directly correlated, not separated by 100,000 light years. Yeah, so that the spiritual correlate with non-locality. I was actually talking to some scientists a few days ago in a conference, and I was, and I was telling them that they want me to talk to them about consciousness. So non-consciousness, that consciousness has quantum features. In the sense, it is characterized by total non-locality in time and space. Like everything in time and space interpenetrate. The right. word interpenetrate is the classical, used by some Chinese philosophies a few hundred years ago, they call it interpenetration, that everything interpenetrate each other, not an expression of the same thing. They really are the same thing. Plotinus, you know, the father of New Platonism, the Greek Plotinus, said each soul, soul is indivisible. You don't, your soul is not separate from other. Your soul has all the other souls in it. Mm. He said the star has all the stars in it. Interesting. It's in the Enneads. You can read in the Enneads. Wow. He says it's in the planet has the whole universe in it. And That's people cool. don't know that, you know, Plotinus actually said that. That's very cool. See? This isn't just abstract philosophy. I think that there are, I don't know if I could articulate them all, but I think that there are real practical implications of this for our lives as awakened or awakening beings, that it somehow comes right down to uh, something that is significant in our, in our daily living experience. It's for learning. It's really, really handy for learning. If you really establish or have an access to this place of uh, non-locality, when, when, when you realize you have access because all time is in you, you have access. You can learn from others directly. Like people tell me, did you study Shankara? I do, I did. But when I study Shankara, I actually get into the mind of Shankara. I yeah. go to the time Shankara was experiencing himself and experiencing him the way he experienced himself at that time. And that is not possible if we don't have this non-locality. Right. So I'm not just remembering, I'm actually stepping into the shoes of somebody. You can do it by stepping in the shoes of somebody else right now. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's very useful for, for a relationship. You can, you can know what the other person, where they are coming from, what they're feeling by feeling them from inside. That's very cool. I yeah. actually have a friend who 
for whom this is not only a, a knowing thing, but a visual thing. If he goes into a deep state and thinks uh, or tunes into Abraham Lincoln, he sees Abraham Lincoln wandering around in the Oval Office and, or, you know, or, or sees Jesus Christ you know, preaching or something. And this might seem far-fetched, but it's a very vivid uh, thing. It's not just a vivid imagination. He feels like he's really kind of crossing across time and tuning into an actual cognition of of that individual yeah. so, so he has he has that access yeah yeah you see so uh, it's, it's, it's all potential for us as because each human being we are the whole universe or in all its times so it's a question of developing the access the access is not easy there need to be a maturation and development of many capacities and openness and being free from all the beliefs and ideas right. and the limits that we put in ourselves of what is reality and so that's why I'm saying expressing realization practice continues because we never finish with these potentialities. Yeah. So nobody still has developed the capacity to locate themselves physically at any time they want to be. But it is, <laughs> it is potential for yeah. us, see. We can do it with our minds, with our conscious. And some people learn by locality or something like that. You hear about that? Some people sure. can. Yeah, like uh, Don does, Juan and Carlos yeah. Castaneda books. And it does like happen, yeah. but it is really a potential. <laughs> There's a comedian named Stephen Wright, and uh, he said, uh, said, I went into a restaurant, and it said, breakfast served any time. He said, okay, I'll have French toast during the Renaissance. Yeah. <laughs> Why not, yeah. <laughs> so here's another question for you that came in. Um, what is driving reality to manifest in all these different ways? Short, simple question. Yeah, so that, that's a question that many people ask. Why is it that way? Especially people ask the question that way when they are frustrated in their practice. Why is it like this? Why do I have to do this? That's one reason. Why does God design the world this way? Right? And... Uh, as usually my answer, well, different tradition gives you different stories, right? Why it happened that, uh, that way. The way I see it, first of all, I don't know if I have an answer for it. I don't know if I have a final answer. I probably have a different answer at a different time. But the way I see it now is that that is the nature of reality, to be that way. The nature of reality is not that it is a mystery but it is a creative mystery. It is always creating, actualizing its potentialities. It is infinite potential that is inherently manifesting these potentials mm. in various ways. That is just the nature of how reality is. I feel like we are individual expressions of that same tendency. Don't you find that you just have this sort of tendency to want to express potentials and to be creative and you know and everybody does yeah everybody and, does. and it's like we're just kind of like little facets of a much larger jewel of of god or universal intelligence and we're just reflecting that same tendency that we see in nature itself which is just endless explosive yeah. diverse creativity yes, it's true that's, that's, that's one way i see it that we, each one of us is a facet or an expression or a lens and where it's natural for us to express our potential in fact we feel unhappy when we can't do it yeah we feel limitation that we don't like 
And because, partly because it is a facet, but remember what I said, the facet contains the whole. Right. We are the total reality whose nature is creative and is always manifesting and illuminating its manifestation. You know, life becomes interesting when, when we're like that. We're both the individual, but we're also beyond the individual at the same time. Mm -hmm. We can be the whole, we can be the non-dual and expressing ourselves through this individual in, the, in that personal life. Or we can recognize as the individual, I am the whole actually. I'm all of it anyway, as an individual. Right. So of course I have the property of the whole because I am the whole. Yeah, that's cool. Towards the end of your book, the last few chapters, I, I found something very interesting that you were doing, which was you were making these fine distinctions between subtle levels of reality. For instance, um, you said pure presence, and no, for in your own experience, pure presence and knowingness transitioned into pure awareness, which transitioned into the absolute. And then a little bit later on you said, the absolute is subtler than pure primordial awareness because there is no perception or capacity for self-reflection. It is still possible to discern these dimensions because discerning intelligence of reality is present in all its dimensions. What I found interesting about all this is these fine gradations between yeah. pure presence and knowingness and the absolute and pure consciousness. And to yeah. me, that's not clear in my experience. To me, it's like one whole realm of life, but I, I couldn't mm -hmm. possibly discern between the fine layers of it. Well, it's actually happening in our ordinary experience anyway. Is it? And we are seeing the basis of what's happening in our experience all the way. Let me let's put it that way for you, Rick. You're perceiving things. And you're perceiving and you're sort of recognizing what you're perceiving. And the recognition and the perception seems to happen simultaneously. Right. And I'm saying it is there really the perception precede recognition. Yeah. And, well, and there can't be perception without recognition. Sure. Like, you I mean, just to understand what you're saying, so it sounds like you're talking about sort of cognitive science kind of stuff where a baby might perceive yeah. something but not recognize what it That's, is because right. it doesn't have the knowledge or the interpretive abilities. Yeah, it doesn't know what it is because its mind hasn't developed. Right. Like cognitive capacity hasn't developed. However, in exploring our way of experiencing and all the faculties used in experiencing, I see that there is first the perception and the perception brings about knowing, which then bring about naming and labeling, mm -hmm. right? So you can actually recognize for without, without, you can know without naming. In the sense, you could feel love and you're loving and, and you don't, you're not thinking of the mind, your mind is love, although you're acting in a loving way. But how does all this relate to what I was asking about pure consciousness and, and the absolute and so on? Because it sounds like there you're, you're making fine distinctions between very subtle levels of, of reality. When I think of pure consciousness, I'm thinking of some kind of fundamental ground state of very close to, if not identical with, a sort of ultimate absolute reality of, of being. Well, okay, now this fundamental ground state, is it aware of itself or not? 
I'm not necessarily qualified to answer that, but I would say it becomes aware of itself because its nature is consciousness. Well, let's put it this way. Pure existence might yeah. not be aware of itself, but it, be, but it has within itself the seed of, of self-recognition or consciousness, and yeah. so it becomes aware of itself, and then in becoming aware of itself, a kind of a, a dichotomy is set up, knower known, process of knowing, and a whole, the whole sort of diversification ensues. So, exactly, that's what, it, what I'm saying, but I'm saying it in a, a little Different way. more detailed way. Yeah, yeah. For instance, consciousness, or whatever you call it, the absolute, whatever. It is, first it is, and then it can perceive that it is, ah. and then it can know that it is. Seeing something and knowing it are two different steps. Okay. So I'm saying consciousness, the, the ground, can be non-conceptual. Yeah. In a sense, it has no concepts mm. in it. Because it has no concept, there's perception without recognition. Mm. Similar to the way the baby is. Sees many things, but they don't, it doesn't know what they are. We are innocent again. That's the place of pure innocence. And it is a condition of realization when you are and you're aware, but you don't even know you are. Mm. But you are spontaneously yourself. But there can come cognition, which is another dimension, where you know that you are, and you know what you are. Yeah. You know you are consciousness. Before that, you are the consciousness and perceive it, but you don't know that it is you are being consciousness. If you stay at that level and not get the recognition, that's what Gurdjieff called the stupid saint. <laughs> In the sense that you go about saintly, but you don't know why. Mm. Awakening includes knowing. There's not just awareness of the ground, but recognizing it. Recognizing it, recognizing not only what it is, recognizing that that is what you are. Mm -hmm. All of that includes knowing. But that knowing is another faculty or another dimension. I see it as another dimension of being arising out of the of the pure awareness. First, there's just pure awareness, non-conceptual, and out of that arises another dimension that brings in knowingness. So, perception and knowing are two levels of consciousness. So, I'm making distinction like that, mm -hmm. and further distinction than those. But these are the main two. I find it a useful exercise to try to understand these distinctions. It sort of cultures subtler thinking, you know? And it seems to me you can take it in two directions. I mean, you could think of the inner journey as you proceed more, more and more deeply within, and everything kind of folds in upon itself, and you arrive at levels of, of being which are pre-conceptual, pre-manifest. And you could also take it the other way, and even in, in a universal sense, in terms of the manifestation of creation, where pure existence becomes conscious, and then consciousness becomes intelligent and begins to assume a creative role. The whole thing emerges yeah, in, in that yeah. direction. That, that's another dimension, which is recognizing that this consciousness, that is awareness and knowing, also has the capacity to create. Yeah, yeah. To manifest out of its, to manifest its potential to become different forms and phenomena. And it would seem that its self-knowing is the thing that's stirs the ocean 
of being in order to stimulate creation. It, it, it sort of creates an impetus for creation with, when this self-knowing occurs. Yeah. And the knowing, you know, I, I, is very important. You know, in, in Vedanta, for they, know, they make the knowing the most important thing. Like, there's only knowing, some of them say. There's only, you just know, and you know that you know, and everything is knowledge. Right? And you could see that. I mean, it's, I remember Rupert Spira trying to convince you of that. He's telling you everything is knowledge, which is true. Logically speaking, all you have is your knowing in the moment of what's happening. However, that knowing first requires a perception. And the perception, it is possible to have that perception free from, from the knowing. I don't know whether the Vedanta goes to do non-conceptual. Probably some of them do. I talk about. I don't know, but they usually always talk about the knowingness. They equate in the uh, in Satyajit Ananda, chit, which is consciousness. They always think of it as knowing, and I see like that knowing can be differentiated at a different level. There is the consciousness, which is just awareness, mm -hmm. perception, and there is the knowingness of that. And the knowingness is not mental knowingness, is an immediate knowingness that the consciousness itself knows it is consciousness and knows its being. And uh, the interesting thing about the knowingness is, as we said, we talk about the baby perceives but doesn't know. In fact, it, it, in the baby, in some sense, is similar to a stupid saint. <laughs> saint. Yeah. And then, not completely, because they still have their temper tantrum and all that. but they can perceive purely without without the mind without the beliefs and the habits and all that they're just their doors of perception are are just there but the cognitive capacity is not developed it has a rudimentary one and as we know through development of psychology that the cognition developed takes time and to develop and i see that as and that development of cognition gets us to become an ego self because we part of the knowing development the cognition you know this is this this is that i am not you and so they develop what's called dualistic knowing but i see it as a stage as necessary for the development of cognition for knowing so that when realization appears again the capacity of knowing is developed and that we can know so the baby who is a stupid saint now becomes an adult who is an awakened saint. You know what, it, what your being is, even though you wear it before, but you didn't recognize it, now you recognize it. I think it's an important point because some people say, oh, babies are enlightened and then they lose it. Maybe that's true in, in the sense that there's a sort of a pure innocence and innocence is also yeah. characteristic of enlightenment. But obviously, as you just said, one has to go through all sorts of developmental yeah. stages before enlightenment in any real meaningful sense can become a living yeah. reality. If you don't recognize it, it's not enlightenment yet. Yeah, and if you can't function in the world while yet maintaining that pure awareness, then yeah. it's not going to do you much good. Yeah, so knowing adds something to just be, being and awareness of being, and there is knowing. and. When the knowing is habits of being, that opens the heart mm -hmm. and then adds a whole dimension of love where the whole consciousness is pervaded by sweetness, by lovingness, by goodness, by joy, 
And that's the Ananda, Satchitananda. We recognize it's the knowing and the lovingness are two sides. In fact, one of the things you know about being is its goodness. It feels freeing, feels good, feels good. We call it blessed, but yeah. basically it feels good. It doesn't feel bad. But you have to know, you have to have knowing for your heart, for to know your heart. It's a nice point. Shankara said that the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. And I don't, I don't know whether imagine, uh, duality is imagined or, or real, we've discussed that earlier, but definitely if there is duality and if there is a, a sort of a relative creation, then there can be love and devotion and all those lovely qualities which you wouldn't find in complete homogenous oneness. I, I think his expression is actually comes from experience mm, yeah. in the sense the process of creation from being is similar to our imagination. Mm -hmm. Like we imagine things and they seem real in our imagination, just like in our dreams. You know? So reality, you could say, is created by imagining. But imagining is its way of creation. God imagining is the creation of the world. It's not an individual who's imagining. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was once asked, you know, what is the purpose of creation? And he, he said it's, the purpose of creation is the expansion of happiness. And uh, I think he went on to elaborate that, you know, just flat wholeness or, or being without any manifestation is okay. But, but that there's a joy in, uh, and an expansion of happiness in the sort of the manifestation, the diversification, the, the living of being as opposed to just the sort of flat being by itself, not being lived by anyone. Yeah, so we could, we can surmise that, you know, yeah. we, could, we could give uh, manifestation a purpose, but also if you stay in the non-conceptual, you're not thinking of a purpose. Right, you're not it's thinking anything. It's just what it is. <laughs> it's just what it is, it, it does what it does. It does what it does. And if you start knowing, then you could see meaning to what you know, and then you could derive purpose from it, which is, and at different stages, you have different, you think of different purposes that are useful for the path. Well, we've nearly reached the two hour point. Is there anything uh, you want to mention uh, in closing that we haven't brought up yet? Well, we've covered a lot of ground, but uh, is there anything you feel is important in your book or anything else that you, is on your mind that like to throw out there? I have something in my heart. As we talk, I notice there's more and more sweetness and more and more connection with you. And also with the audience, I don't see. I feel like an aroma arising, flower yeah. opening. Like as we talk about reality, reality is happy. Yeah. No, I have the same experience. It's funny because you said that at the la end of the last interview too, and and I listened to it just the other day, and it, it's really true. I mean, it, it it stirs up the bliss to have a conversation like this. Yeah, there's a bliss, there's happiness, there's lovingness, there's yeah. appreciation, and there is you know the different ways of connecting and being that we're we are expression of the same reality, but we are also not only expression that we are of the same reality. Yeah. Like, the, like I, I feel you are there, I am here, however, the there is here. Right. You're not over there, you see, you're actually right here. I feel you're right here, and I feel myself over there. 
There's a wormhole between us. Yeah, there's a wormhole. <laughs> First, I wear the love, the heart open, and that opens up the wormhole. Yeah, it's beautiful. Good. Well, we'll see each other in person at the non-duality conference in the science non-duality in October. You'll be yeah. going there, I imagine. Well, possibly. Yeah. I don't know yet. I mean, we're still talking. We're still talking. Okay. I hope you come. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Might yeah. be be interesting. Good. Yeah. Well, good. Good talking to you, Rick, as usual. And I, I like that you try to get into the details of things, into the not just two things in general. Well, that's where the that's where the juice is, you know. Indeed, I love you. I like the fact that you're having people ask questions. Yeah, I like that too. I think that went pretty well. So, um, as far as I know, we'll continue to do that as long as it goes well and people enjoy it. Um, seems like I don't know how many questions were sent in. I, I asked the fellow who's monitoring the questions to just send me, you know, a few of them because if if, a, if 50 came in, I couldn't ask them. So he's been screening and picking out what he felt were the best ones, and they were good ones that, that people send in. So we'll, we'll keep doing that. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. And maybe in the future, if we do another interview, we can do it about another book or... Yeah, sure. Like that. Do you remember the book, Power of Divine Arrows? I remember the book. I haven't read it, but I, I remember yeah. that's one of the ones... That's the book that Karen and I wrote together. Ah. And it might be interesting to do yeah. an interview about that because it brings uh, the Tantra, what people call Tantra, and how life, we discuss how Tantra is a way of living life. It's not just what people think of it in the, in the limited sphere. Yeah. And it might be an interesting thing because if you do that interview, you'll do it with both of us. Yeah, maybe we could even that, do that. That, that uh, can bring the relational aspect in it. Maybe we could even do something like that out at Sand. Um, Maurizio and Zaya were talking about having it a little bit more formalized where various people are interviewed by me and, and Zaya and somebody else. And, yeah, and I think uh, that's a good idea. It's part of the program. You're good interviewers. I'm glad they're going to ask you to do that. Alrighty. Well, let me make some quick uh, general concluding remarks. We've been speaking with Hamid Ali, who goes by the pen name A.H. Almas. And this is my second interview with him. If you enjoyed it, you might also want to check out the first one. Uh, we've been talking mostly about his book, Runaway Realization, which um, I enjoyed a lot. And he's written quite a few books. You'll see this book and a number of his books listed on his page on bathgap.com and links to the Amazon pages where you can get them. And also a bit about Hamid and a link to his website. You see all that on, on batgap.com. If you go there, you can also subscribe to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. There's a donate button, which we depend upon people clicking in order to support this whole thing. There is an audio podcast of the program, and you'll see a button that you can click to sign up for various ways with that audio podcast, and a bunch of other things if you explore the menus. So thanks for listening or watching. And we will see you next week. Next week, I'll be speaking with a guy named Vasant Swaha. Uh, he'll be Skyping with me from Brazil, I believe. Yeah, Brazil. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Amid. Yeah. Thanks, Luke. Yeah. See you see again. You. Yeah. Bye. Bye.